And uh, what we're going to look at tonight is the Bible calls that the remnant, right? Those who are left from the beginning and the original. And I know many of you have only missed one night or two nights or somewhere in there. And so we're so, so happy to have gotten to know each other. What a blessing it is. And uh, that we can consider each other brothers and sisters in Christ. And we study the Bible together, and what a privilege it's been. So we just want to thank you for coming, and uh, also thank you for the privilege of just getting to know you, because it's just a blessing to see what heaven is going to be like, amen? People from all over, studying together, who love Jesus, and just desiring to come closer together. Well, tonight is another important topic that we have. Last night, or not last night, forgive me, on Tuesday night, we looked at Revelation chapter 17. You guys remember that study, right? Revelation chapter 17. And we were looking, and we saw that in Revelation chapter 12 and in Revelation chapter 17, there were two different women that were represented, right? We saw that the woman in Revelation chapter 17, was she a good or a bad woman? Well, I, I would say that from the characteristics, she was bad, right? And we're not passing judgment. We're just by the fruits. You shall know them, is what Jesus tells us. And it was, it was not a good woman, right? And we saw that a woman represents what? A church, right? That's what the Bible talks to us, is a woman represents a church. And here we had Revelation chapter 17, what was represented as a compromising church, right? The errors of Babylon that have, that have crept in even into other churches today. We told you a little bit about, and we started looking at the chapter of Revelation chapter 12 that shows a pure woman, and that's our study today. Who is the woman of Revelation chapter 12? If Revelation chapter 17 talks about the impure church, does Revelation chapter 12 tell us about a pure church? Is there a people that God has on this earth who are truly what he calls his own? Well, why don't we study the Bible together as we get ready to do that? And before we study, like every other time, we need the, the Spirit to lead us, right? We don't, I don't want to say anything wrong. I don't want to say anything that's not of the Bible. And we don't want to hear anything wrong. We just want to hear what's from the Word of God. And so before we begin, why don't we bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we're here gathered this evening because we'd truly rather have Jesus than anything in this world. Lord, many of us have had the opportunity in life to have other things, but we realize that the thing that gives us hope that the thing that gives us joy in life is truly knowing Jesus. And Father, we just want to thank You for that. Thank You for calling us out of darkness into Your marvelous light and allowing us to understand the beauty and the truth of Jesus. And Father, we just pray that as we're winding up our study on the book of Revelation, that You would please speak to our hearts one more time. Lord, we're in desperate need of Your Spirit. We need You to guide us. We need You to give us wisdom. And Lord, we just pray that You would give us instruction as we open Your Word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, the title for tonight's message is Back from the Wilderness, and it shouldn't be a surprise to you that like every other night, where do you think we're going to get our answers? From my own opinion? For some church book? No, 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 we're going to get our answers from the Bible again. You know, the thing that I love the most about studying the Bible together is you don't have to make stuff up. Did you know that's really easy? You know, it's easy to be a preacher when you can just preach what the Bible says, because you can read it for yourself, and I don't have to make it up. And what a beautiful opportunity the Lord has given us to study the Bible together. And I think the Lord has brought us here because we desire to know the Bible. Is that why you came? I mean, why would you sacrifice your time if you didn't want to know the Bible? That's why we've all come together. And you know, what I've recognized as I've traveled not just here in Michigan, but even around the world, that you realize that we're living in a society where people are starting to hunger for God. Have you noticed that? 
that there's people who are looking to God to know more, that they're earnestly pleading that the Lord would show them the truths of the Bible. You see, people are just wanting to know more about Jesus. They're wanting to know the beauty of His character. And that's why we're here this evening, because we too have a hungering for genuine Christianity. Would you agree with that? How many of you say, Lord, I don't want to just have the same experience that I've had for my whole life, but I want to have genuine, powerful, deep communion with Jesus Christ. That's why we're here this evening. And this is what the Bible tells us, is that it's possible to have it. You know, I believe that the Lord's placed the desire in each person's heart to have a desire to know Jesus more. Do you think the Lord's placed that desire in everyone's heart? I think He's placed it in people's hearts who aren't even Christians today. And people who have that desire for something more, they just don't know how to fill it. And some people turn to materialism, but we realize that does materialism satisfy your desire to know Jesus? Absolutely not. You can have all the houses, the cars, the money in the world, and you will never be satisfied without having the truth of Jesus. There's other people who try to be satisfied with the pleasures of this world, and many of you can attest to the fact that the pleasures of this world are really useless in comparison with Jesus. Would you agree? Other people look at technology and video games and, and movies and entertainment thinking, man, if I can just have the, new, the newest and the best, then, then I'll really be fulfilled. But friends, really, the only place, and you know this just as well as I do, the only place that we can have fulfillment is in the Word of God. You see, I believe that's why we're here tonight, is because we're looking to learn about the Word of God. You didn't come here because you wanted some pastor's idea. You didn't come here because you thought I had a good understanding of Scripture. You came here because you want to know what the Bible says, right? You came here because you want to hear Jesus speaking through us. Now, we have the blessing to know that the Spirit says that when we are desiring to know truth, that the Spirit will lead us into all truth. Now, have we seen the Spirit doing that so far as we've been going through our seminar? Have there been things that were new to us? Have there been things that maybe were challenging to us? Maybe we didn't understand them at first, but as we see it and as we test it through the Scripture, we see that the Spirit is truly leading us into all truth. You know, I believe that the Bible is calling for a people in these last days who love Jesus more than anything else. That there's a people who want to know God more than anything else in this world. And I believe that the Lord has brought us here, and specifically for our study tonight, is that the Lord has brought us to be a people who understand what the Bible says about Bible truth. You see, there's many reasons why people go to church, and we looked at some of those on Tuesday night. You know, people might go to church because of the good music, and we all love good music. They might go there because the building is beautiful, or because their friends are there, or whatever else. But we're here because we want to be part of God's church, part of God's people, of what the Bible says, right? We want to have a foundation that's solid. I want to remind you of this verse. Some of you weren't here on our last study. And the, the verse here where Paul talks about what is supposed to be the very foundation of the Christian church. Notice what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. He says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And then it tells us, that it's the pillar and the ground of the what? Of the truth. It doesn't say of the many versions of truth, right? It says that there's one truth. That the church is to be founded on the truth of God's Word. And I believe that's why we're here. We're earnestly digging into the Word. You know, Proverbs chapter 2 tells us that we're to seek for truth like for hid treasure. If I told you that there was treasure buried out in the yard of this church, of, of this school here, would you be out there digging? I mean, if you knew it was true. If you knew that there was gold buried just a few, a few feet under the dirt, would you be looking for it? Well, some people say you wouldn't. I, I don't think I would be preaching here. I might, well, okay, I would. We realize that there's things more valuable, right? But we realize that there's some, you would be searching for it diligently. Some people would miss dinner. 
Some people would miss lunch. You'd wake up early in the morning. You would do it before work. And the Bible tells us that that's the same way that we're supposed to seek for knowledge and wisdom in the truth of God. You see, as we're coming together, we realize that we don't want just tradition. We don't want another person's idea, but really we want our church to be founded on the truth of God's Word. Now, sometimes that's challenging because we have to be honest. Is our church founded on God's Word? Is our church really rooted in the Bible? And that causes us to do some heart searching. But what we realized is that when you find the truth, we need to look for a church that teaches that truth. Don't you think that's a good pattern to follow? If the Bible says it, if it's important to Jesus, then we find the church that teaches that. If, there's, if our church doesn't teach it, then maybe we continue moving on. But we realize that whatever the Bible says, we want that to be the very foundation of our belief. Now this is somewhat of a review for those of you who were here, but this is just setting the stage for our study tonight and what the Bible says about the woman of Revelation chapter 12. I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12 as we begin our study tonight. Revelation chapter 12, beginning to look at the, the subject of back from the wilderness. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. Now, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1 begins by giving us a depiction of the woman of Revelation chapter 12, and notice what it says. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of what? Twelve stars. Now, just from the very onset of this chapter, does this lady look a little bit different than the lady of Revelation chapter 17? Now, we know the lady in Revelation chapter 17, she's riding on a beast, right? She's riding on civil power. There, she's, she's also filled and just decked out with jewels and gold and all these things. She has wine in her hand. You know, you have this idea that this is just a, a worldly, compromising church. But here, when you open the Bible and you look at Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1, you see a very different picture. And it says that all the things that are surrounding this woman are things that you would find in what location? Notice, notice with me. It says, Now there was a great sign that appeared in heaven, and a woman was clothed with the what? What does that say? The sun. Okay, where do you find the sun? In the, in the sky, right? In the heavens. And then it says, With the what under her feet? The moon. Where do you find the moon? Well, you find it in the sky as well. And then notice what it says, And on her head a garland of twelve stars. Also, again, a heavenly depiction. Now, why would the Bible be depicting this woman as clothed with heavenly sort of things, right? Notice with me what the psalmist says in Psalm 19, verse 1. It tells us that the heavens declare the what? The glory of God, and the firmament shows forth His handiwork. You see, it's very clear that the heavens, as you look up into the heavens, how can you not but see the glory of God? How many of you have ever looked up on a clear night and you see the stars there, and you just start thinking, I'm so small. God is so big, but yet He cares about me. And you can't help but see the glory of God in the heavens. Now, a couple nights ago, we looked at what the glory of God was. Remember when we talked about giving glory to God? But we also looked at the, 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 the passage in Exodus chapter 33, where Moses tells God, show me your what? Your glory. Remember we looked at that passage together? And God said, I will make my name pass before you. And when the, when the Lord God showed Moses his glory, the Lord said, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, right? Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. 
And the Lord, in showing Moses his glory, what was he showing Moses? It was his character, right? Now, this is very interesting. As we look at this lady in Revelation chapter 12, we see a woman who's not clothed with compromising principles like we saw the woman in Revelation chapter 17, right? She's not flirting with the kings of this earth trying to get influence with others. But you realize that she's clothed with the very most beautiful thing that you could be clothed with, and that's the glory or the character of God. Do you see that from the Bible? You know, the heavenly things are what clothes, was what she's clothed in, and it's really the glory of God that's enfolding this church. Now, I don't know about you, but if you want to be a part of a church, would you want to be a part of a church that's known as a compromising church? One that's apostate and, and flirting with the world? Or would you want to be a part of a church that's covered with the character of Jesus? Well, absolutely. that's not a hard question, right? We don't even need to answer that. We see what the Bible clearly says. Well, we're going to go ahead and continue reading on just through this passage to understand another beautiful point. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 2. It says, Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his horns. Now, who is the great dragon? Well, we've seen multiple times, even later on in this chapter, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 tells us that that great dragon was the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, right? So it's interesting. This lady becomes pregnant, and there's the, then Satan gets upset, this fiery red dragon, and notice what it says in verse 4. His tail drew, drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, who is this child? Notice verse 5. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his what? Throne. Now, who is this child that's being born of this woman? Jesus, right? Very clear. We don't have to guess at this. Jesus is the child who was caught up to heaven. And Jesus is the one. Did you, do you think Jesus was, or Satan was trying to wipe out Jesus from the very beginning? It's very clear that Satan wanted Jesus to be ousted. Remember when Jesus was born, there was a decree that went out that all the children under the age of two were to be what? Executed. And you can see right as this lady is ready to give birth that the Satan is trying to do all that he can to kill Jesus. Now what's very beautiful about this church is we see that it's a church not only clothed with the character of God, but it's a church that Jesus relates himself to, right? Jesus says he's close to this church, so close that he's connected to it by birth. Now we realize that Jesus really is the head of every church, right? Isn't that what the Bible tells us? That he's the head of the church, actually, is the more appropriate way to say that. That the head of the church, and we are his body, right? And Jesus here, this is not a church that's compromising. This is not a church that's of the devil. But this is a church that Jesus is so proud of that he relates himself to it and says that he was born with it. In other words, he doesn't say he has a different identity or a different origin, but this church and Jesus have the same origin. Would you agree with that? Isn't this what the Bible is saying? That Jesus and this church are connected. All right. I, we, we will continue on with that. If there's any questions... You can put it in that question box for Saturday morning. But we're, we'll continue on. It's very clear that Jesus has a close connection to this church. I think we can see that, right? He's born out of it. And notice what happens after this. There's many things that we can look at, but we're going to look at some of the highlights of this passage. And then we're going to find the identifying marks 
of this church. But notice how the Bible describes it. Notice what verse 12 says. Revelation chapter 12, and sorry, verse 6. Forgive me, verse 6. It says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now this is very interesting. The Bible tells us that Jesus is born, and then out of that, it doesn't say that Jesus fled to the wilderness, does it? But it says that a, the woman fled to the wilderness. A woman represents what? The church. And so here we see the church of God is fleeing to the wilderness. Now, is a wilderness a very populated area? No, it's kind of where you go when you don't want to see anyone, right? You go camping in the wilderness. And you see that this lady is fleeing to the wilderness, and then it tells us that it's a place where God had prepared for her, and that she should be there for 1,260 days. Now, do you guys remember seeing 1,260 days before in our study? You know, Daniel chapter 7 talked about this with the time that the Antichrist would reign. Do you remember that? He calls it times, times, and the dividing of time, which we looked at was just an expression to say 1,260 prophetic day. Now, we saw in Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6, that in Bible prophecy, one literal day equals one, or one prophetic day equals one literal year, right? We, we saw that together. Now, what's interesting is you'll see this time period, 1260 days, 42 months, time times the dividing time, over seven times in Scripture. In other words, it's a common theme, and it's always connected to the same time period, and it's the time period when the Antichrist power starts its power or starts its reign, and then it goes up to the time where it receives its deadly wound. Now, you'll remember this as we look at the chart together, that this is exactly what the Bible talks about. But before we go there, we're wanting to look at this 1260 years. There might be some questions about this still. Why is it that they run into the wilderness for 1260 years? Notice with me what verse 13 tells us. Why is she fleeing? I think I skipped a slide, so we'll have to look in our Bibles here. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 13. It says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he did what? He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings as a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for times, times, and half a times. We see that, ex that expression is used synonymously with each other from the presence of the serpent. So why is it that the woman is fleeing into the wilderness? What is the Bible telling us? It's because she's being persecuted that she flees into the wilderness. Okay, so we have this woman, God's church, is going into the wilderness. In other words, when you run into the wilderness, are you trying to be very visible if you're being persecuted? Let me ask you, if you're running into the wilderness when you're being persecuted, are you going to be wearing orange and bright colors or maybe some camouflage, right? You're going to be trying to get out of the way and out of the sight of people. We see that God's church goes into hiding because it's being persecuted by the dragon. Now, what is this time that we're talking about? This is the time that we've looked at many times, and this is the time of the Dark Ages. Isn't this the same time period we've seen multiple times in connection with the 1260 years? or with the times, times, and half a time, or the 42 months, this is the time that the Antichrist reigned. And we see that the Antichrist, when did it come to power? 
We looked at these quotes together, right? And if you forgot some of those things, you can get the recording and listen to it again where we walk through it systematically. But when did he come to power? When did the system come to power? 538, right? Remember looking at that. And he comes to the end of his power at what year? 1798, when what happened to him? General Berthier comes and takes the Pope captive, takes him into captivity, and the civil power of the religious and civil entity of the uh, papacy is now broken, and the church receives its deadly wound. Now, what's really interesting is that the Bible tells us that during that time, God still had people on this earth. You know, during the time of the Dark Ages, it's more correctly known in history as the Middle Ages, but as we understand it, people refer to it as the Dark Ages because it was a time that was dark because the light of God's Word was not shining. Are you guys familiar with this history? And what's very interesting is that God tells us that His church would be persecuted for 1,260 years that go from 538 to 1798. And we see this very clear in history that Satan's turned his wrath on the woman, which is the Christian church, right? That Satan now, instead of he couldn't kill Jesus, and Jesus goes back to heaven, so now he goes to persecute the one that Jesus loves the most, his bride or his woman, which we know as the church. Now, during the Dark Ages, we saw some great persecution. One of the most tragic things that happened during the Dark Ages was that the Bible was actually banned from people. Are you, you're familiar with that? that the Bible was actually told that if you were caught with a piece of the Bible or with the Bible in its entirety, that you could be subject to prison or death just because you own the very book that you have in your hand. How many of us think that we should be a little more thankful for the Bible? Do you think that we should be appreciative that not only do we have one piece of the Bible, but some of us have multiple Bibles sitting on our bookshelf? Now, these were people in the Dark Ages. God's people were being persecuted. They couldn't even have the Word of God, but now sometimes, even though we have the Word of God, we don't read it. Right? In the Dark Ages, Satan took away the Bibles. In the last days, Satan just takes away our interest in the Bible. But we realize either way that Satan's causing a great delusion to come upon the world. And you know since Satan started chaining the Bible to the church or causing only the, the intelligent scholars or the priests to be able to interpret the Bible, this is what the belief was at that time, that only the priests could interpret the Scriptures for you. And because of that, people became very ignorant on the teachings of God. Now, out of that came many different delusions. We see that instead of baptism by immersion, there was now baptism by sprinkling and baptism by all these things. Satan just took away with the truth of God's Word because he didn't, people weren't reading it anymore. God also did away with the truth of the immortality, of the, or did away with the, that when you die, you, you rest in the grave, and instead replaced it with immortality of the soul. It was during the same time because the Bible was being put away and people were going with the traditions of the world. It's at the same time that people believe that in order to be saved, that you had to have works that commended you to God instead of being saved by grace through faith. Isn't that a terrible belief? And this is why Martin Luther was climbing on his knees up the staircase trying to get penance with God so God would forgive him. And you see that the errors of the Bible that are many very prolific in the Christian church today crept out of the Dark Ages. Now, this is where the confusion about Sunday and Sabbath comes out of. You take the Bible away, people don't know what day to worship God on. So they just follow the traditions of the church. And if they didn't follow the traditions of the church, people were killed and persecuted. But did you know something beautiful is that God has always had a people? Did you know that? I mean, you look throughout Bible history, and God, there's never been a time on earth's history where God does not have his people. You see that in the time of Noah, did God have his people? 
Yeah, you had the, the eight who filled the ark. They were faithful in their witness for God. God had his people, even though the majority of the world had turned their back on God, right? You realize that in the time of Moses, did God have his people? Some, you might have wondered who God's people were when they're wandering through the wilderness, but he was at least had faithful Moses and Aaron, right? And you realize that God had his people. In the time of Jesus, did God have his people? Absolutely. In the dark ages, we see as well that God has his, had his people. And what's interesting to note is that during this persecution, the 1260 years that Revelation chapter 12 talks about, that it's very true that the church ran into the wilderness to find relief from the persecution of the Roman Catholic Church at that time. The, the story of the Waldensian Church. Have you ever heard of the Waldensians? The people who are so earnest to know God that they moved out into the Swiss Alps and they were there studying their Bibles and they would take little pieces of the Bible and they would sew it into the cloth of their clothing so that they could have the Bible with them and hopefully not be found out. And as they were there, they were faithfully trying to serve God. They were trying to witness even in the midst of adversity. And God had his people even in that time. You know, something else that's interesting is during that time when the Bible doctrines were being diluted is that God had people who were still being faithful to God's command. You know, when the, the church was saying that you need to worship on Sunday instead of Sabbath, God had people who were being faithful to worship on the Sabbath even in spite of persecution. What's really interesting, you guys have heard of the man by the name of St. Patrick. Anyone heard of St. Patrick, right? You celebrate that holiday. St. Patrick was actually a Sabbath keeper, a Protestant Sabbath keeper who was being faithful to the commands of God in Ireland even amidst persecution. Now, it's kind of interesting that the people that were persecuting him now kind of honor him. But you also realize something else that's interesting is down in Africa, for almost a thousand years, you had people who were still keeping the Bible Sabbath because they saw the truth of God's word. And actually, there's different tribes in Africa who call Sunday white man's day. In other words, they didn't know anything about why you wouldn't go to church on Saturday, but they just started realizing that these white people started coming over and telling them that you need to worship on Sunday. They didn't see it from the Bible, but they saw it from tradition. But you realize through that time of all this confusion that God had his people faithfully standing up during that time. Now, the Bible tells us that God is not a God who ever leaves us. If we want to know God's will, will he show us? If we want to know what the Bible says, is he faithful to show us? Absolutely. God tells us that he'll stand behind us, that he'll guide us with his truth, and this is what we see happening even through the persecution of the Dark Ages. But now what we want to look at is does the Bible give us any characteristics about who these last day people are? Because notice what Revelation chapter 12, verse 17 said. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. It says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the what? The rest of her offspring. Now, the, the word rest in the King James there is translated the remnant of her offspring. Now, can I ask you a question? What does remnant mean? Has anyone ever heard that term before? I know that sometimes it's leftover parts, right? Now, you use that, the term's used sometimes with cloth, right? If you have a roll of cloth and you have a remnant cloth left, it means that it's a little bit at the end. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is that cloth that's left over the same type of cloth that was there in the beginning? 
Well, yeah, it's the, it's the same thing, right? And so here God tells us that Satan now turns his attention. He can't attack Jesus because Jesus is in heaven. So he turns his attention to the rest of this woman's offspring. You see, the woman comes out after persecution, after 1798, that God's church starts to come out and emerge, and you realize that now Satan is coming to attack God's people. Now, notice the characteristics that the Bible gives here of God's people. It says, who keep the commandments of God and have the what? The testimony of Jesus. Now, this is very interesting. You know, with the, the church of Babylon, you saw so many characteristics, right? We walked through that, and it was characteristic after characteristic after characteristic. And you wonder, how many times can God say these people were wicked, right? But here, when you look at God's people, you realize it's a very simple identification to know who are God's people in the last day. The very first identifying mark that God gives us for this is that these are people who do what? What did it say? That they keep the commandments of God. Now, he doesn't say that he, they keep nine of the ten, right? We were just looking at this in the class before, studying about are God's commandments still important for us today. And James tells us that if you break one, you break them all, right? And here we have that people who are not just keeping nine of the ten, you understand what I'm saying when I'm saying that, right? They're not saying that the Sabbath has no significance, but here they are walking by faith in love for Jesus, keeping the commandments of God. Now I want to ask you a question. Why is it that anyone would keep the commandments of God? Why is it that anyone walks in obedience? Well, John chapter 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, you keep my commandments. Right? Here you have people who love Jesus so much that instead of going with the traditions of the world, they now want to follow Jesus with their whole heart. Isn't that the truth? When you love someone, you want to do whatever they ask? You know, you, you want to please them. You want to make them happy. You want to do with the things that bring them joy. And here, God's last day people, when he looks at them, he gives one very simple characteristic. And he said, these are people who keep the commandments of God, and that's all ten. Now, I want to ask you a question. If we're looking at God's end-time church, how many churches does that rule out just right at the beginning? I'm not being unfair, but I'm just saying, what does it say? How many churches keep all ten commandments? Now, before we go any further in this, let me just make one clarification for the sake of being clear. I'm not telling you that people who are faithfully trying to do their best and learning to know Jesus and walking and, and keeping Sunday are going to be lost. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're, I'm not saying that God says that those who don't know to do better, He says that those who know to do good and do with it not to Him it is sin. Now, here's people. God has people in all different denominations. Would you agree with that? People, we even talked about people who are in the beast power, right? In the Roman Catholic system. But they love God and they're following God with all their might. But here we see one thing very clear, is that in the last days, it's going to come to a head and God gives a message that makes it very clear to the world, are you following tradition or are you following me? And when we see that, and when it's brought to our attention, am I following the commandments of God? Maybe we didn't know before, maybe we were ignorant of that fact, but now as we see it, the question, are we walking in willful disobedience, or are we walking out of love for God in obedience to what he asks us to do? Does that make a little more sense? You see, when God says that these people in the last days of part of his church would be keeping the commandments of God, he's talking about those who have been told what the truth of the Bible is, that they're walking in obedience to Jesus. I want to ask you a question. We live in a society where it's not popular to talk about the commandments of God. Have you noticed that? 
Maybe you haven't noticed that. You should try preaching on the commandments of God sometime and realize how difficult it is by facial expressions and, and different things like that, that it's not the most enjoyable topic that people like to hear. People believe that you can walk in disobedience to God all throughout your life and then get taken up to heaven and that God saves those who are walking in defiance to him. I want to ask you a question. Can you point to one passage in scripture that shows me that? Can we point to one passage in scripture where defiant people are taken to heaven? No, we realize that it's only those who are walking in loving obedience to Jesus who are taken, right? You know, James talks about faith without works or faith without obedience is what? Dead. We don't want to have a dead faith. God says we want to have a living faith, and how he identifies that is those who are walking in willful, loving obedience to our Savior. Now, we've talked about this many times throughout the seminar, so it shouldn't be anything new. But notice there was one more characteristic given here. It says that they would keep the commandments of God and have the what? The testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, we could go around here and talk about what it means to have the testimony of Jesus Christ, but what's interesting is Revelation gives us a very clear key that helps us to see that the testimony of Jesus Christ is a symbolic phrase pointing to something else. Notice, notice this. Now, it's not pointing to someone else other than Jesus Christ, right? We have Jesus Christ. That's who the testimony of our lives are about. But notice how Revelation specifically uses this term in the last days as it's talking about those who have the testimony of Jesus. Look at what Revelation chapter 19, verse 10 says. You might even want to look in your own Bibles just so you can see it with your own eyes. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10 the Bible tells us that God's last day people will keep the commandments of God and they will have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay, the question is, what is the testimony of Jesus Christ? I'll read the full passage here from Scripture, Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. And it says, And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brothers who have the testimony of Jesus. Okay. Well, what's the testimony of Jesus? He says, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the what? The spirit of prophecy. Now, this is very interesting. God talks about in his last day church that his last day church will keep the Ten Commandments, all ten of them, by loving obedience to their Savior, and that they will have the testimony of Jesus, which the Bible describes as the what? The spirit of prophecy. In other words, there will be prophets in their midst. Now, if you're anything like me, when you start hearing people talk about prophets, you get a little bit on the edge of your seat. Can anyone relate to that? Because we've seen so many erroneous things coming up, but I want to ask you a question. Have prophets, or the gift of prophecy, has that been something that God used before with his people? Let's just look through a few passages of Scripture, because I think we need a little more understanding on this, at least I need a little more understanding on this. Maybe you'll just have to sit along for the ride. But Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and you'll, you'll probably want to turn there. I just encourage you to turn to everything. You never know what's on the screen. Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at the spirit of prophecy. God's last day church has the spirit of prophecy. Well, is this something new or is this something consistent that we see all throughout the Bible? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, and notice what Paul says. Notice what he says. It says, and he, who's the he? Who's this talking about? And he himself, Jesus, or God, right? 
and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some what? Teachers. Now, when we look at this list, this is a list of spiritual gifts, right? We've seen this before, probably many times. And we see that there's many different gifts that God gives to his church. And notice towards the top of his list, it says that he gives apostles and then he gives prophets. Just interesting. And then he gives some who are evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now we have all of those things today, right? People who are apostles or disciples of Christ. How many of you would consider yourself a disciple of Christ? We have prophets. Well, is that something that we see is important to God? Well, he tells us that it is. And notice how he continues on this passage. Ephesians chapter 4, and look at verse 12. Why does he give us these things? It says, For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the fullness of Christ. I want to ask you a question. When do we come to a knowledge of the fullness of Christ? Is it going to be on this earth? Or is it going to be as we see Jesus in the clouds of glory? Right? It's going to be we're constantly learning. We're constantly drawing closer to Jesus. And no one has a perfect knowledge of Jesus until we're able to sit at his feet. Would you agree with that? I mean, are we proud enough to say we think we know everything about the Bible? But God tells us that these gifts that he gives are going to be with us until we come to the fullness of Christ. Until we understand him in his fullness or until Jesus is revealed and we see him face to face. So then should it be a surprise to us that in God's last day church there would be a prophet or someone who speaks for God. Now we're going to talk about that. What does it mean to be a prophet? Because not everyone who comes on and says, hey, I'm a prophet, gets that label. Would you agree with that? I remember knocking on doors in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I met this guy, and I might have told you this story the first night. I can't remember. It's things blur together, but forgive me if we have. But I met this guy who he opens the door, and I start telling him about some, some books, and I was just offering him Bible studies and things like that. And he says, well, you know, I don't, I don't really need anything like that because I'm Jesus. And I said, oh, okay, like Jesus, you know, you're from New Mexico, you know, maybe it's just the, the name for Jesus. No, no, like I'm Jesus in the flesh, you know. Oh, okay, you know, and my wife's a prophet. Now, if, I, I don't know about you, but I'm a little skeptical when someone starts telling me that they're Jesus. Well, first of all, that's just erroneous. But then they start telling me their wife's a prophet. What is she doing, testifying of you? You know, I mean, I, this is really odd. So we have to be a little bit skeptical when we hear this, right? And it's not wrong, but actually the Bible tells us that we need to be skeptical. Did you know that? Notice what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15. It says, beware of what? False prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now, I want to ask you a question. Did Jesus say beware of all prophets? Did he just say beware of prophets? No, why did he not say just beware of prophets? Well, because there's obviously going to be true prophets. Would you agree with that? But what he is saying to beware of is beware of false prophets. Now, I'm with Jesus. I'd like to beware of that. And even in Matthew chapter 24, twice Jesus says, beware of false prophets, beware of false prophets. And you see that in the last days, do you think there's going to be a lot of false prophets? Well, it's very clear that there are. Now, I'm not just talking about in the secular world, right? You have Nostradamus and some of those others. And I don't think we're going to fall away in thinking that they were true prophets, right? We see that what they're saying isn't coming to pass. They're secular people. But the Bible's talking about there being a prophet in his church, right? Isn't that what it says? Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, that they would have the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. His church, someone would have the gift of prophecy. Now, this is just interesting. We want to look at this. 
I want to ask you a question. Does the Bible give us any guidelines of how we can tell if someone's a true prophet and how we can know if they're a false prophet? Does the Bible give us wisdom on that? Because if the gift of prophecy is in God's last day church, we want to know this, right? We don't want the wool pulled over our eyes. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 28. Jeremiah chapter 28. Now something else we should know is God's used prophets all throughout the Bible. You know the book that we have in our hands is because God sent prophets, right? You would, you would agree with that. So it's nothing new, but Jeremiah chapter 28, how is it that we're supposed to test a prophet? How do we know if the gift of prophecy is truly with someone? Jeremiah chapter 28, and in verse 9, notice what it says. Jeremiah chapter 28, and verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 28, beginning in verse 9. It says, As for the prophet who prophesies of peace... When the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Now, do we see a principle there of how we can test a prophet? The Bible's saying is if a prophet says, hey, it's going to be peace, it's peace. Remember in the time of Jeremiah, there were prophets coming and saying peace and safety, peace and safety, Jerusalem's not going to fall or anything like that. And, and Jeremiah the prophet says one thing. He says, if they're crying peace, and when it comes to pass, if there's only peace, in other words, what they say happens, then you know that they're a true prophet, right? Isn't that pretty simple? I can't tell you what's going to happen to you tomorrow, but if someone tells you something and it happens, then that's one indicator that they might be a true prophet. Now, the next passage of Scripture we're going to look at helps us to see that it's not the only characteristic, right? Can Satan work signs and miracles? Could Satan even set things up that he might know about and make you know about it before it happens so he looks like a true prophet. I, I think he, I'm not going to call him too dumb, right? So we realize that one, the first test of a prophet, is that first they have to be accurate, right? The thing that they predict needs to come to pass. Okay, we just, we just need to see that together. Notice what Deuteronomy chapter 13 says. We see another characteristic of a prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 13 Notice what it says, Deuteronomy chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Notice what it says. It says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he has spoken to you, saying... Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not, what? Listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, do you see what, Jeremiah, or you see what Deuteronomy is talking about, what Moses is talking about here? He says, if someone comes and they say that you need to go worship other gods. But what they told you even comes to pass, right? If what they say is accurate and it's truthful and it's happening, don't believe them. If they're even accurate, but they're pulling you away from the God of Scripture, are they a true prophet? No. You see that God is never going to send a prophet to testify about something that pulls people away from Him. Would you agree with that? Now, this is why we have a lot of issues with prophets today. There are prophets in other churches that you might know about. And we're not going to name names, but you can just think a little bit, right? 
who are some prophets in different churches, people who claim to have the gift of prophecy, but their prophets don't actually point you back to the Bible, but they might even write you a New Testament of that scripture, and you, you can think about that a little bit, right? And so you realize that there are prophets that lead away from scripture, but God is saying that if the prophet is accurate, number one, and if what they say is in harmony with the Bible, then we can realize that we're close to being on safe ground. Would you agree with that? Now, are there, was there any prophet in the Bible that God ever sent who contradicted another prophet? No. Did Jeremiah contradict Moses? No. Did Jesus contradict the Old Testament? Absolutely not. Did Paul contradict? No, no, no. They were all in agreement with one another, right? Talking about the same God and the same words of Scripture. So this helps us to see it. Now, one more passage that will be clear to us as well to just clarify this point. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. God says, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is how much light in them? No light in them. I want to ask you a question. If you have someone who's claiming to be a prophet, they're even claiming that they're speaking on behalf of the God of the Bible, but they're doing away with the law of God, are they a true prophet? I'm asking you, what does the verse say? Absolutely not. There is no light in them to the law and to the testimony, right? If they're not according to the scripture, they have no light in them. Okay, this is helping us to understand the idea of prophecy. When God says that he has an end time church, he tells us that this church will keep the, t the commandments of God, all ten of them, not selectively which ones they think are best. And it says that they will have the testimony of Jesus or the spirit of prophecy. Now this is the true spirit of prophecy, the one that Jesus spoke about, not the false spirit, the one where they can test it by the Bible and you know that they're true with the Bible and that they're pointing you closer to Jesus. That was another thing that 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 talks about is if there's a prophet coming along that pulls you away from Jesus, are they a true prophet or a false prophet? False, right? I mean, Jesus is the center of our faith. And every true prophet will testify that Jesus is the Savior of this world. And if there's anything not according to that, we know that there's no light in them. Now, we're going to look at another passage here. God talking about his church, we realize that God's church didn't just start here in the last days, but it started back in the, Old Test or in the New Testament, right, with the apostolic church. Well, we can say God's people were all the way back into Adam and Eve, right? We know that God's was there. But we realize that in the New Testament, God had a group of people called the 12 disciples who were part of his church, and they were called to go and make other disciples. And what's interesting is that we realize that through this characteristic that God gave the command to his church of the New Testament time, of which the last day church is just the remnant, right? It's the piece that remains from the New Testament time. Would you agree with that? It's consistent all throughout. He tells us something that helps us to identify God's last day remnant church. Notice what it says here. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Many of us have read this before, right? It's not a new verse. And it says, go therefore and make disciples of how many nations? Of all nations. We see that God's church in the last days, are they going to be just keeping to themselves? Or are they going to be a mission-driven church? Was the New Testament church mission-driven? Have you read the book of Acts? I mean, you can't read the book of Acts and say they weren't mission-driven. But also, they weren't just mission-driven to the own community, right? That own local street. 
but it says that they were to make disciples of how many nations? All nations. In other words, this is a worldwide movement. Would you agree with that? All nations. How can you be in all nations and not be part of the rest of the world? You see, God's last day church is a people that will be keeping the commandments of God, that they'll have the testimony of Jesus, and that it'll be a worldwide mission movement to reach all nations. This is what God's telling us. Now, notice we've looked at this passage of Scripture before. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6. It tells us that there's a last day message. And who do you think is giving God's last day message? Wouldn't it be his last day people? God's last day people are, are told to be giving a message. And how are they giving it? They're giving it to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. In other words, this is worldwide, right? You see that once again established in Scripture. But I want you to turn there to Revelation chapter 14 to see what this last day message is that God is giving through his last day people. Because if God is giving the message, then his people must be living the message. Would you agree with that? And so God's last day people, you could say, are characterized by the last message that God gives in Revelation chapter 14, known as the three angels' message. Notice what it says. We're going to read through this. We've, we've studied through this whole passage by now, but we're just going to hit some of the highlights. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6, it says, Then I saw a, right, another messenger flying in the midst of heaven, having the what? Everlasting gospel. I want to tell you, if there's a church that's not preaching the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, are they the true church? I would sure hope you would say no, right? If Jesus, if there's any other way to salvation other than through Jesus Christ, that's not the way that the Bible tells us about, right? The everlasting gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he's the only one that could save us from our sins, right? Notice, but it continues on to describe this everlasting gospel. It says that they're to preach it to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And they're saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. You know, we've looked at this message on, I think it was night number eight and number nine of the judgment hour message, right? God's last day people are telling the world that the time of judgment is about to come. Now we realize that's not just any time of judgment. Well, we saw that that judgment began in 1844 as, as Daniel chapter 8 and 9 told us about. And so notice that they're telling people that they're living in the judgment hour. And notice it continues. It says, And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. We've seen this before, that this is a direct quote from Genesis chapter 1, or Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, talking about the Sabbath commandment. God's last day people will be people who once again are keeping all ten commandments and they're preaching about the importance of the Sabbath commandment. Would you agree with that? That's what the Bible is saying. But notice it continues on. You know, just, I just want to stop really quick for one moment. I think the reason why the Sabbath is so important is not because it's just an arbitrary day, but it's the one day that God offers to spend with his people. You know, it's the one day that we can get to know God. It's the only day that he says that he's sanctified and blessed. And if Jesus gives us a day, I don't want to miss that day. I wouldn't miss a day if someone important gave me that time. How much more if the God of heaven said, I'm going to set aside a special day to spend with you. You know, it's a beautiful reminder that he's the God of creation. It's a beautiful reminder that he's the God of sanctification and redemption, right? You rest from your labors and looking that God is the only one to save. This is the beauty of the Sabbath, and I think we can't pass over that too quickly. But notice it continues on. 
Verse 8, and it says, Another angel, angel followed him, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, we looked at this study on Tuesday night, right? The study of Babylon. What was the wine of the wrath of her fornication? It was that polluting of the doctrine, right? She wanted to win friendship with the world, and we realized that that's enmity with God, so she cast aside the things of God and held on to the traditions of the world to make her doctrine more favorable. The Bible tells us that these people, his last day people, would be pointing out the errors of Babylon. Isn't that what it says? Babylon has fallen, has fallen, warning people of this crumbling system that's built on man-made doctrine and not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see that this is another characteristic that God has given to his church. Notice verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tortured. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now we took a whole time to look at the mark of the beast. And we realized that if you boil down the mark of the beast, it's people who say that they want to go with the traditions of this world instead of the word of God. Isn't that basically what it was? They wanted to receive the mark of the beast, which we saw to be Sunday worship, and instead of following what God says, they went along with what the papal church said. But you see, these last day people aren't going to be people who are just going along with the world and the traditions of the world, but they're going to be people who are truly going to the Bible as the only authority for their rule of faith and practice. Is that clear? Now we've looked at several identifying points, four of them to be exact, and it says that they keep the commandments of God, they have the testimony of Jesus or the spirit of prophecy, they're a worldwide movement, and they preach the everlasting gospel, which is the gospel that we found in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 12. I want to ask you, how many churches do you know of that are preaching this, or that are, have these as their identifying characteristics? Because when God defines his last day church, he defines them as this. Now remember what Jesus says. He says, many sheep I have which are not of this fold. Remember, he talks about that, and we'll look at the verse together. In other words, God has people in the other systems, but what is he doing to them? Revelation chapter 18, verse 4 tells us that he's calling them out, right? God is calling people out of the delusions of the false systems of worship into his church. Now, this is not something that is arrogant to talk about, right? This is not someone who thinks that they're better than someone else and that's why they're God's people. No, no, no. It's just simply because when you look at their beliefs that it lines up with what the Bible teaches. Does that make sense? We realize that this does not say that these people are the only ones who will ever enter heaven. Did I say that? Just let's make this clear before we get to the identifying of this group. They're not the only people who are going to enter heaven but it is very true that God names them as his church from Revelation chapter 12. Would you agree with that? Now, notice what this says. We've already, we've already looked at Revelation chapter 18 where he calls them out. And God tells us that he's calling his people out of the false systems. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, right? Lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plague. You see, when God looks at his church, where is he calling the people out of the false churches to? Well, it's obvious to his church, right? 
He's calling them out of this delusion into his marvelous light. And this is what the Bible is telling us about. These are the characteristics that we see. Now, this, this puts me in a little bit of an odd position to tell you who the system is. And I, I want to go through this very carefully and very systematically to see if this really matches up. To see who it is that the Bible identifies as God's last day church. And in order to do that, I'm going to share a quote with you that we've read once before, but I think it helps us to understand this again. Notice what it says. It says, perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The first, or the holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any directions noted in the scriptures, but from the church's sense of its what? Own power. Now we saw that this was the, the fulfillment of Babylon, right? They were the church that changed the day of worship. But notice what this continues on to say. They say that the, the Sunday worship has no direction from Scripture, and so they're looking for a people that do take all their directions from Scripture, and notice what they say. People who think that the Scripture should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep the Saturday and keep Saturday holy. Now, I'm sharing this with you because I think it's very clear not just to those who are inside the Seventh-day Adventist church, but to those who even look at it, that when you look at the identifying marks of, of God's true church in Revelation chapter 11, that it tells us that they're ones who keep the commandments of God, right? Not the traditions of men. And we see that found in the Seventh-day Adventist church, that they're not people who are just going along with the traditions that have been handed down from generation to generation, but they're taking their Bible as their sole authority. Now, once again, I'm not telling you that the only people going to heaven are Seventh-day Adventists. But I am telling you that the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12 that God classifies his last day people as those who have the characteristics that we've found together. Would you agree? And now the question is, do we see the marks of those characteristics in the Seventh-day Adventist church? We're going to walk through this step by step just to see it. Do they keep the commandments of God and they're not selective about their which ones they keep. Now, I have to tell you something. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, okay? That'll make it a little bit easier. And I think many of you know that. Not a surprise. We've talked and we've, we've noted that. But what's interesting to note is the things that we've talked about in this seminar show you very clearly that we believe that all of the Ten Commandments are, are important to God. Would you agree? We haven't lessened any of them. We haven't said that there's one that you can just do away with. And that would be a lot easier to talk about. We would get a little more friends. We'd get a few more likes on Facebook. But you realize that the reason why is because God says they're important. And out of loving obedience, we want to follow what he says. Now, number two is the question of, does the Seventh-day Adventist church believe in the testimony of Jesus? In other words, does it possess the spirit of prophecy? Now, I want to tell you that in the, ninth, in the early 1800s, there was a woman by the name of Ellen G. White. I don't know if any of you are familiar with her. And she was coming out of the Baptist movement and out of the Methodist church. And they were there just there during the great religious awakening. You've, you've heard that term before. In America, it was a great revival of Christianity. And she was there in that time. And the Lord started giving her visions and dreams. Now, if you're anything like me, the first time I heard this, I thought, what in the world? Like, this is weird. But we've realized that if the Bible says that there's going to be a gift of prophecy, then it should be there. Well, the Lord started giving visions and dreams, and at the age of 17, she started seeing, you know, what the Lord was telling her from the Word of God, and just started writing the beautiful truths about the Bible. Now, she actually became one of the most prolific authors in the world. She's actually the most translated woman author to this day, and she's actually written many books that just point you closer to Jesus. 
Now, I'm not telling you to, to accept this at face value, right? We need to test a profit. And I've had the opportunity of a little more time with this, and so I've been able to test the profit and look through, is what she's saying according to what the Bible says? Has she said anything that's in contradiction? Because if so, I want nothing to do with it. You know, if the Bible named another church as the remnant church, I would go join it. I'm not here just to support something else, but we're just looking at what does the Bible say. And we see that the Bible shows that they'll have the testimony of Jesus, and we see that throughout her life. Now, it's very interesting that it's not only Seventh-day Adventists who find her life to be a blessing to the world. In other words, it's not just us looking at her and thinking, well, this is great. But notice that she's actually had great contributions to the world, and we're just wanting to see testing this. Now, we'll give you more time to test it afterwards. But notice this, this, this quote from the professor of Cornwell University. He says, whatever may be the religious belief of a reader, he or she cannot help but gain much guidance in a better and healthier way of life by reading the major works of Ellen G. White. Every modern specialist in nutrition whose life is dedicated to human welfare must be impressed by the writings and leadership of Ellen G. White. Now, what he's talking about is Ellen White wrote a lot about the Gospels. She wrote a lot about the books of Jesus and pointing people to it. One of my favorite books is the book Steps to Christ. And we'll, we have an opportunity for you to have it, read through it. One of the most powerful books that I've read in the life of Jesus, pointing you back to the Bible. And we'll look at some quotes on this in a second. But what this guy is saying is that she not only wrote on the life of Jesus, but she also wrote on health topics, right? God wants us to prosper and be in health. And he's saying that when you look at her writings, she wrote in the 18 and early 1900s, and he says that they're beneficial for us today. Now, if you know anything about medical knowledge, it changes so rapidly. Would you agree? A journal from 20 years ago can be basically outdated. But what's interesting is God was able to give prophetic understanding that would help guide people, even though medical understanding was changing, they would learn that the things were true. Notice one of the examples of how we can see that the Lord was leading her. Now, this is one of the quotes that she says in the book Ministry of Healing. She says, tobacco is a slow, insidious, but most malignant poison. Now, you would read this and think, well, yeah, duh, you know, that's, that's pretty obvious. We all know that. Just read the label on the cigarettes. But when she wrote this, she was writing in the time when doctors would be prescribing cigarettes for people who had emphysema and lung problems. In other words, you're familiar with that, right? That was a time in history, and you can read about it. And during the time doctors are prescribing these things that they thought would be helpful, she's saying, hey, look, this is going to kill you. Now, she looked like a fool, but now in today's society, we think, what in the world were doctors thinking, right? It was very clear that the Lord was leading. Now, not only that, but we see that all that she wanted to do was point people to Jesus. Notice, notice this passage. This is what she says in The Great Controversy. She says, in our time... There is a wide departure from the doctrines and precepts, and there is a need of a return to the great Protestant principle, the Bible and the Bible only, as the rule of faith and duty. Would you agree with that? I mean, here we are, and we see that people are departing from the Bible, and she says, we need to get back to where? Her writings? Is that what she says? You need to look at me because I'm going to be, you know, really, no, no, no. You need to get back to the Bible. You see, some of you might be thinking, well, how is it possible to have a prophet? Well, if that's what the Bible says, we just want to accept it. If it's not possible, then we don't, we don't want anything to do with it. Now, we need to test it. We've given, we have some books in the back, and I'm a soft-hearted person, so if you want one and don't want to pay for it, we'll give it to you. But you can read through it and see, does it match up with the Bible? Does it point us to Jesus? Does it meet the test of a prophet? And really what we see is that it points us closer to Jesus. 
You see, we've gone through 20 nights of the seminar, and how many times have we found that our faith is based on what Ellen White says? I want to ask you that question. None, right? We've never once said, well, this is the reason why we believe in such and such. It's the reason that the Bible says, right? Every time we're pointing to the Bible, the very Bible in your hands, the very Bible in my hand. But God tells us that he would be sending a prophet that would help to continue to point us back to the Bible and back to Jesus Christ. And we believe that that role was fulfilled in the life of Ellen White. Now, we can also see, if you have any questions about that, we'd love to talk to you. But also there's another identifying mark is that God's last day church would be a worldwide church, right? They'd keep all ten commandments, they would have the gift of prophecy, and they would be a worldwide church. Now I'll just share a little bit of figures with you. The Seventh-day Adventist Church has established work in over 202 countries of the 20 or 228 countries of the world listed by the United Nations. In other words, they're attempting to take the gospel to the entire world, right? We don't want to just sit and talk about how we can be better with ourselves, just doing fun things to keep us entertained, but we want to take the gospel to the world. And notice this quote from the World Council of Churches, not a Seventh-day Adventist organization. Just notice what they say about it. It says, global mission and evangelism are essential elements to the SDA ethos. And SDA is just a short abbreviation for Seventh-day Adventist. The church is intent on sharing the good news of justification, righteousness by faith, salvation through Jesus Christ, and his imminent return. Isn't that what we've talked about all throughout this seminar? And as a result, the SDA Church is probably the most widespread Protestant denomination with work in over 200 countries. Now, this is not to boast. We're just saying, does it match up with what the Bible talks about would be God's last day church? Now, we can go through different things to see that there's um, other ways in which the Adventist Church has been involved in helping people. But for sake of time, we want to get to the last one. The last identifying mark would be that they would be preaching the everlasting gospel as found in Revelation chapter 14, verses 8 through 12, right? We've studied that many times together. And I want to ask you, because you've been sitting here, has this been what we've been studying? Is this some of the main message that we're talking about? Is the everlasting gospel calling people back to the true worship of the Creator, warning people about the deceptions of the, the world today? It's very clear that this is what the burden of the work is because if there's any other burden than the everlasting gospel, we've missed the point. But Jesus tells us that this is what would be one of the identifying marks of God's last day church. Now to some of you this might be new. To some of you this might be old hat. But the question is, what is the Bible saying? Are we seeing it consistent in Scripture? If God can label and point out who the beast power is, if he can point out who the Antichrist is, if he can point out who Babylon is, do you think he can point out who his church is? And look, I'm telling you, if you told me, if you could show me from the Bible that your church was the church of Bible prophecy, I would be with you, and I'm not telling you. We have no alliance to some organization. It's just, if it's in the Bible, we won't. If it's not in the Bible, we want nothing to do with it. You see, Jesus is calling us, and he calls us that he wants us to come out of darkness into his marvelous light. He wants to continue to show us the beauty of truth. You know, we've looked at this passage once before, but notice what it says. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18. He says, but the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter until the perfect day. You see, as God leads us, does he continue to lead us into more light every day? How many of you can say that in your Christian experience? We see it on a daily basis. God leads us, and our path gets brighter and brighter as the word of God illuminates on our path, right? And we realize that God is leading us. Now, the reason why we share this is because some people say, well, I thought God was leading me before. 
I have no doubt that God led me to the church where I am today. And to that I would say, I agree with you. I have no doubt that God was leading you step by step. The question is, is God, is, is God continuing to lead us through the light of his word into more knowledge of his truth? Is he trying to direct us into a fuller understanding? You know, I have no, I have no question that my mother led me into the fourth grade classroom. But she didn't leave me there. I had to come out and go to the fifth grade classroom, right? And the sixth grade class. Now, I learned great things in each one, but sometimes you have to keep moving to learn what God is showing. You know, we don't want to be people who are stagnant, just saying, well, this is what I've always done, but we want to be people saying, Lord, if the light of your word is opening to this, then Father, by your grace, we just want to follow you. I think it's very clear that God is calling us as his people. Notice what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 16. He says, the other sheep I have which are, and other sheep I have, which are not of this full. But notice what he says. Them also I will bring, and they will hear my voice, and they will be one flock and one shepherd. You know, the, the thing I want to make very clear to you tonight is that I'm not here to coerce anyone. No one came here to hear my opinion, but we're here to follow the voice of the Lord. Would you agree with that? The Lord speaks to us through his word. The Lord speaks to us through his Holy Spirit. And as the Lord is speaking to us, you hear his voice. You're his people. That's why we're here together. And as God is speaking to our hearts, the question is, are we following God as he's leading us? Or are we ever going to come to the point where we say, Lord, I don't, I don't really want to know more about your word. I just, I'm happy where I'm at. I'm comfortable where I am. I don't know about you, but I want to be part of the people who say, Lord, all that I want to do is follow you with all my life. Isn't that where we want to be? Lord, I don't want to hold anything back. I don't want to do anything that's displeasing to you. You know, this, this, tonight's message is one that might be challenging for some, and I would really like your feedback on this. This is one that we really need feedback on, because I know it's new to many people. Many of you are God-fearing people, and we'd love your feedback, knowing what it is that you're thinking at this point. We just want to hand these cards out to you as the ushers are handing them out. You'll notice it's very simple. It's like the ones that we've handed out before, and this is the last one of the meetings, just to kind of wrap up, seeing where everything landed. And this is an opportunity to respond to what we've been hearing. It's an opportunity to respond to the Lord's voice. And let me tell you one thing. It's not giving you an opportunity to respond to me. But the Lord Jesus has led us here because he's leading us. Would you agree? The Lord could have had you anywhere else than these meetings, but the Lord led you here. And I don't know why he did it, other than the fact that he wants us to walk in the knowledge of his truth. And here we have the Lord is calling us to a decision. And notice what the card says. It gives us a spot to fill in our name. And the first box says, I choose to follow the teachings of Jesus as found in the Bible. If this is your desire, I would encourage you to check that. Lord, we want to follow your teachings of Jesus as we find them in the Bible. If that's your desire, we would encourage you to check that box. Number two says, out of love for Jesus, I choose to keep all of his commandments, including the seventh-day Sabbath. If this is what Jesus is calling us to do, out of love for him, I would encourage you to check that box. Box number three says, I want to follow Jesus in baptism or rebaptism. We've given this appeal many times, and we just want to make sure the opportunity is given for anyone who wants to walk in a newness of life, as Jesus talks about in baptism, to experience that opportunity. Box number four says, I choose to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. Isn't that what Jesus tells us in John chapter 4 would be happening in the last days? And to become part of the Seventh-day Adventist church, which the Bible identifies as God's last-day church. Now, number four says, I have questions and I would like to discuss. If you have anything on your mind, please 
Please write your questions then. We'd love to hear them. We want to know if this is from the Bible. We want to see it clearly. And if you have a question, if you can show me why anything's wrong, show me and we'll make it clear to everyone else. But the reality is, is are we just going to follow Jesus and what he says? You know, God is a faithful God. He's the true shepherd. And the Lord is faithfully leading us day by day. And the question is, are we going to follow him? And just like the song says, I will follow thee, my Savior, right? Wherever thy lot may be, I have followed thee. You know, it's my desire tonight to say, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you with all my heart. And I know each of us are at different points in our lives, but I know that the Lord has brought us here because we each have a desire to follow him. And as you fill out this card, I would encourage you not to do it lightly, not to just do it to please someone else, but fill it out because this is your response to what Jesus is leading you to. The last verse that I rings in my mind is the one where Jesus says that Jesus is the way, the what, the truth, and the life. My friends, if we're rejecting truth, we're not rejecting the truth that I've taught. If it's in the Bible, we're rejecting Jesus. We want to know what is Jesus showing us? And by his grace, are we willing to follow him? I want to encourage you to fill out those cards, and after you're done filling them out, just pass them to the outside of the aisle, and if you don't have Pass them out to the outside on both sides. And I know that the Lord will make it clear as he's working on your heart. If you haven't gotten a chance to fill that out, feel free to go ahead and do it after prayer. And then just pass it to the outside of the aisle. Why don't we stand together? How many of you want to stand and just say, Lord, I can't wait for Jesus to come. When all the pain and suffering of this world is over, when the truth is so clear that we're with Jesus, why don't we pray together? Father in heaven, you're a merciful Father. Lord, you call on our hearts and you're so faithful to lead us into all truth. Lord, we're here because we want to be your children. We want to walk in the ways that you're calling us to. And Lord, we, we studied a message tonight that might be challenging for some. For some, it might be relieving to realize that you really do have a people on this earth. Father, we know that your people have never been perfect, but Lord, it's only because you're leading them that you call them your people. Father, here we have many who have made a decision or who have renewed a decision. And Father, we just want all of our lives to be surrendered to you. We pray that we'd walk closer to you every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.